Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Hello, Haley. And Haley Kamath. Hey, hey, what's up? Guys, we're back at it. We have a little bit of a different format for today's show. We're going to do one main story and then one big interview. So we'll get into that in a bit. But how are you guys doing? We're doing good. I, I mean, well, I'm doing good. I'm not speaking for you, Haley. I, I hope you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Haley and I, I are doing am. great. <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, the little kind of scuttlebutt that was burning up the internet before we hopped on here, of course, I don't know if you guys saw that Twitter finally began rescinding the legacy blue check marks. Yes. And just, and this is a very cursory because this only happened like, and this got rolled out in the last hour or so. So I don't pretend that I've done some exhaustive research, but I did think it was at least interesting to see what notable legal minds still have them, meaning they're paying for, oh, sure. for the blue check. And that's become in the in these early moments here about like that's sort of a fun game to be like, oh, who's actually paying for this stuff? Uh, I have to say a uh, former solicitor general and former pro se guest, Neil Katyal uh, at Hogan Levels now, I think, still has the check. He's paying for it. So there you go. I don't render a judgment in either in either case. That's not my job. I'm just here to tell you He's got it still. <laughs> that is interesting. And one very quick casualty within this, um, following in the footsteps of NPR, SCOTUS blog has decided to stop tweeting. That just happened. Oh, I did um, see so, that. Yes, yes. Yeah, they're dropping off of Twitter. So you're going to have to find them on TikTok, find them on their own, you know, SCOTUS blog website. They're out of the Twitter game. The SCOTUS wow. blog TikTok game is is sick. I can, I can attest <laughs> to that. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, you know, a, a prominent litigator himself, former mayor of New York, still has the check. This is not an exhaustive research project. As I said, I'm kind of just self-selecting here. The former federal prosecutor, Sally Yates, who, be who became something of a legal celebrity after she stepped down from her post shortly after uh, Donald Trump was elected in relation to the Muslim immigration ban. She does not have it anymore, so take that for what you will. Again, no judgments rendered. These are merely journalistic observations. So uh, stay tuned for this and more, I suppose. Yeah, thank you for that hard-hitting work that you've yeah, been okay. doing here but, today. Well, well, I can do without <laughs> the sarcasm, Haley. Thank you. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I haven't had time to look into that, so thank you. Yes. I think the most interesting thing will be to see if any of our colleagues end up with a blue check mark. Ooh, um, yeah. Well, well I guess I guess in, in full disclosure, Law 360 does have it. So we're paying for it, which is wholly embarrassing. But whatever. <laughs> we're moving on. Um, <laughs> Just for the main account, not for our the, the, the main account. Yeah, yeah. Reporter um, accounts. In any case, what are we going to be talking about later? We have one. That, Amber, you alluded to it. Let's lay out the show for the folks. There. Yeah, we're going to do one big news story here in just a minute. But for our main segment this week, we're doing something a little unusual for our show. We have three actors that are talking to Haley and I about their new TV show on Freevee called Jury Duty. Now, the fact that it's called Jury Duty would be enough for us to have them on the show discussing it. <laughs> yeah, It's a really interesting conceit about how one man on the jury is a real person and everyone else around him, including every participant in the courtroom, are all actors. So, fun show to talk about. But the extra added bonus for us is that the three actors we're talking to, they all have actual law degrees and a legal background. So they were kind of the perfect people to participate in this program. We talked to them on a Zoom. It's a really good call. And one of the things I didn't bring up during the interview, but I'll just mention now, maybe it'll pique some people's interest. 
the man who plays the judge in this program is Alan Barinholtz. And he is the father of two pretty well-known actors, John and Ike Barinholtz. You might know Ike. He's probably the more famous of the two. He was on the Mindy Project, for example. A huge Mindy Project head. Yeah, and yeah. like Neighbors. He's been in a lot of the big comedies, I feel like. Yeah. He actually was recently on, I think it was Late Night with Seth Meyers, talking about whatever project he's working on, but also brought up his dad starring in this show and referred to him as a Nepo dad, which I thought was good. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That's yes. fantastic. All right. Well, everybody stay tuned for that. It's a super funny show and very interesting concept. Personally, I take jury duty very seriously. I've talked about that before on the show. I think it's a serious civic obligation. I don't really appreciate people making a joke out of it, but All I'm right. willing to. Uh, right. I'm, but I'm willing to bend uh, <laughs> bend, my, bend the rules here. No, I'm 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 uh, I'm just teasing there. But uh, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, there is a huge news story to talk about, and it's the third time in about six weeks we've talked about this. So. We just cannot stop. <laughs> we We're can't addicted. quit. We cannot quit the Fox Dominion defamation trial. But the reason we're talking about it again here is that, as I'm sure everybody knows by now, Fox News agreed to pay $787.5 million on the day the defamation trial brought by Dominion Voting Systems was supposed to begin. This is the defamation trial relating to... Fox News's statements about the rigging of the 2020 election. The defamation trial was, was supposed to start on Tuesday. And then word came down that there was this huge settlement mere hours before it was supposed to start. It is a huge development, both in the public consciousness. A lot of people are following this. And also for close watchers of, you know, media law, defamation law, which we've touched on quite a lot here recently on the show. But there are a few other things, even beyond the news of the settlement, which I'm sure everybody knows, there are a few kind of strands that are lingering here that I think are worth exploring. So I wanted to get into some of that. Yeah, I think many people were following this one because there were so many splashy things that came out of discovery before this case really even was getting closer to trial. You know, this is where we learned a lot of the text messages and back and forth between some really well-known Fox hosts about the 2020 election and their their real thoughts about it. but. Beyond that, now that we're at the settlement, other than that big number, what are some key takeaways, like things we should know about the settlement itself? I already alluded to the fact that we've talked about this quite a lot. We're recording episode 294. If you want to go deeper into the facts of the case, you can listen to episodes 290 and 292, where our own Haley Knoth uh, walks us through the particulars of how these cases started. I won't belabor that, both because we talked about it so recently and because it's been so thoroughly discussed elsewhere in the media. But as far as the settlement goes, it became clear that something was going on when the Delaware judge who was hearing the case, this guy named Eric Davis, he delayed the trial by one day from its Monday start date. It was supposed to start on Monday. And then it got delayed. And there were reports of settlement talks. And that is even beyond there being reports of settlement talks. If there's a one day delay in a trial, that's just for your for your like lay legal media consumption, it's usually a sign that someone's pretty close to a settlement because if it was some huge disagreement over some like, you know, procedural hang up of the trial, that would maybe take a couple of weeks to sort out things like that. But sure enough, they, they kicked it just a day ahead. And then on Tuesday, the two sides announced, as I said, the $787.5 million deal. Fox News soon put out a statement saying, 
quote, we acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. And that is about as close as we got to an acknowledgement of wrongdoing from Fox. There was a lot of kind of sideline commentary about whether Fox would issue an on-air apology. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. Or even a written apology. But what I just read to you is about as close as we get to that. And that is an allusion to a summary judgment ruling from this judge from a few weeks ago. We discussed that on the show where the judge said that Fox's comments, they made various comments about Dominion's sort of fixing rigging of the election. And the judge had already ruled that those comments were defamation per se, like just as like facially. All that was left to decide at trial was whether and to what extent the network could be held accountable for statements that its guests made on its airways, even if they are not Fox News employees like its hosts are, And apparently the network just decided, you know, we've already kind of taken it on the chin here. It can only probably get worse at trial. And we're just going to buy ourselves out of this. And that's what happened with this settlement. So that's about where we stand. So with the settlement, is Fox News in the clear? Well, as far as the Dominion defamation claims go, yeah, basically. Um, But they are not sort of clean in the court's eyes quite yet. Litigation is very contentious. As Amber alluded to, a lot of attention was paid to the discovery process and the internal Fox network emails about what the decision makers really believed about what happened in the election, which was very different from what they broadcast. And a lot of this sort of turns on, even now that the case is settled, the judge has assigned a special master to probe into whether the network fully complied with these discovery orders. Another special master. We love our special masters. We, I mean, we, we might have a special master special at this point. Um, (laughs) We'll, we'll we'll spin it off and do special master special. Now, judge Davis has already said that he was considering sanctions for Fox's like feet dragging or it's alleged failure to turn over key materials. And this includes things like this is this is listed in his decision to to go forward with this special master. These are recordings of Fox News host Maria Bartiromo talking with former President Donald Trump's lawyers, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. I've already mentioned him in this show. Kind of forgot that he came up in the context of this case. But anyway, also at issue are these alleged failures to disclose the reach that Fox News executive chairman Rupert Murdoch actually had himself. I mean, he is the head of the entire company, but there were documents that would reveal exactly what role he played in the network's election coverage that were slow to be turned over or some say not turned over. So that's going to be at the subject of this special master inquiry. I don't want to overstate what's happening here. I mean, the headline, as you've rightly read, is that Fox News has agreed to pay, you know, more than a quarter billion dollars to make the case go away. But the conduct during the suit itself is still under judicial scrutiny, and it could result in some more penalties. It'll probably, you know, I I don't want to speculate. It'll be smaller than what we've seen, but it's something that's still lingering in the court's mind. Not to pile on, but (laughs) I know that Dominion was not the only entity upset with Fox News because of their election coverage. What else is still like looming out there for Fox News? 
Yeah, and this has flown under the radar, I think, just because Dominion, it was, this was, the story is not undercovered. It was, it was quite well covered, but because it was moving ahead so quickly and was about to go to trial, it's gobbled up a lot of the media appetite. And, and Dominion is one of the largest players in like the voting technology space, but they're not the only one, and they're not the only one suing Fox. There is still a pending lawsuit, defamation suit, very similar claims from a voting machine company called Smartmatic. And they have also alleged that Fox News defamed them by alleging that the election was fixed and all of that stuff. This case actually seeks $2.7 billion in damages compared to the $1.6 billion that Dominion sought. And as you're probably putting together, um, Dominion ended up settling for about half of what it asked for. They settled for just shy of you know, $800 million. They asked for $1.6 billion. So if you want to extrapolate that to the Smartmatic case, there could still be some quite pricey headaches on the horizon for Fox, but that is something we will definitely stay attuned to. And um, these are just things that I think people will want to keep an eye on, even if you know the top line headlines will tell you that this fight is over. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So stay tuned. No one loves participating in jury duty, but would you like it more if you found yourself impaneled with actor James Marsden? How about if after weeks of hearing a case, you found out the entire endeavor was an elaborate hoax, where the case is fake, everyone around you is an actor, and you're the only one who didn't know? That's what happened to a very good-natured man named Ronald as the basis for a TV show, Jury Duty, now available on Freebie. Today, we're going to talk to three of the stars of this courtroom comedy, one who played the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney. We have all of them with us today, and they also have real-life legal backgrounds as well. Welcome to Pro Se. We're happy to have you guys, Alan Barinholtz, Trisha LaFach, and Evan Williams. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, guys. So I want to kick off with you, Alan. You played our judge on the show, hearing your final case before retirement. Very dramatic. You've actually had a very long 40-plus year legal career, but as a litigator, not a judge. So how did you channel that experience into your character? Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm on my 42nd year now. And for about 30 of those years, I've not only acted as a, as a litigator, but I've been an arbitrator, which is uh, it's one step away from a judge, albeit without a jury. You're still hearing cases. I heard primarily personal injury cases. I still act as an arbitrator. And, uh, and having appeared Primarily in Cook County, uh, because I'm from Chicago, I probably appeared in front of hundreds of judges, and I kind of just channeled uh, the personalities uh, that I was in front of all over all those decades and tried to put them into uh, Judge Rosen. How much of that channeling was cantankerous? Yeah, you know, I, I'm gonna I'll defer to, to to Trish and Evan to a certain extent. Uh, I was relatively easygoing in the trial, but there were certain people who were inept. I will not mention Evan's character. Don't worry, I was gonna get to that later too. I know, <laughs> uh, and yeah, you know, so I would get a little bit cantankerous, uh, obviously with, with some of those shenanigans and uh, some of the, the jurors, um, Susan, who uh, the elderly juror who kept falling asleep and, and uh, 
uh, David, uh, the, the fellow who had those chants, those chair pants, there were some antics that, you know, would get me a little bit aggravated, but the most aggravated I got throughout was when they set up something in the very first episode where I cut my hand and I was very upset about that. Short of that, I don't think I was a mean guy. Yeah. Speaking of Evan's character, which truly I was going to say one of the best, but this is one of those shows where every single character is so incredible. But Evan and Trisha, you both also have law degrees. Can you tell us a little bit about your legal backgrounds and how you used that to inform the choices that you made on the show? My legal background, I went to Brooklyn Law School, which is the Harvard of nowhere. And um, <laughs> I am the daughter of a criminal defense attorney, and I became a federal criminal defense attorney. Um, I actually worked for my one of my father's closest friends, like all through law school. And then I was offered a job by the Brooklyn DA um, my last year in law school, first semester, because I took trial advocacy with him. And I picked a Monday night in case I got a play because theater's dark on Monday and randomly got assigned the Brooklyn DA. And then he offered me a job the second day of class. He pulled me out and he said, you're hired, come work for me. And then I was freaking out because I wanted to be an actor. I was already acting. And I was like, oh my God, I can't turn down the DA's office. My father's going to kill me. And I ended up, the class got pushed because of budget cuts from, from August to January. But then I never ended up going because I did the first federal criminal terrorism trial in the Southern District of New York after 9-11. And so we were deep into what ended up being an almost 10-month trial. And I so I stayed. And then I stayed with him and I did death penalty trial in Brooklyn and bunch of heroin because it's New York. It wasn't LA. So we weren't doing the methamphetamines yet, but you know, how did I, did I channel that into my character? Sure. I mean, her breakdown was that she was very driven and had a chip on her shoulder and me being from New York, I was like, a, a New Yorker with a law degree uh, and a lot of high pressure job experience. No, you wouldn't get yeah, that at all. Exactly. <laughs> I re- actually, when I got the, so a lot of actors get the breakdowns illegally. I don't, but a lot of them do. And the day that the breakdown for Deb came out, I got about 16 text messages saying like, oh my God, this is your role. And then I was like, okay, if I don't get this job, I should have quit years ago. <laughs> and I put myself on tape and I didn't hear anything. And I said, I was like, I you know, when you put yourself on tape on Vimeo, you can check your views. And I always like swear to myself not to check them. But then I did because I was like, not even a callback. Like, this is wild. And then it had like 12 views or something on there. I was like, come on, what are they doing? Making fun of me? Like, well, <laughs> it has to be a callback. And then I ended up getting the job. Thank God. Cause I don't think I could have lived with myself. Evan, what about you? I know you also have a, a pretty lengthy legal background. So how did that play into your role? Yeah, um, it, it helped. Um, the majority of my background was in civil litigation. So um, it pretty much went right into what we were doing on the show, right? Um, just kind of like two people arguing over money, um, which can be petty and fun. And I think we managed to get a lot of that in there. So 
really just enjoyed getting the opportunity to kind of do the work, but just like the most ridiculous version of it, kind of like the way you always imagine yourself wanting to do it, you know, like not preparing, just kind of showing up, shooting from the hip, seeing what sticks to the wall kind of work. You guys have managed to really figure out a way to make your law degree even more fun than I did. I thought I'd done a pretty good job by switching into journalism and having a podcast, but pales in comparison to being on this show. <laughs> um, Evan, I know you also, um, you know, this, this show, I think for anybody listening that hasn't checked it out yet, it's very reminiscent of things like the Truman Show or the rehearsal. It's got that vibe. And so I'm interested in how much was straight scripted versus the improv elements of this show. Um, Evan, I know you might be the right person to answer this because you were a writer on Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show. I know you also, you did some some of the writing for Jury Duty, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was a script supervisor. Great. So like, how do you break a story for something where you have to account for the reaction of this hapless normal person who doesn't know the whole thing's a TV show? That was actually like the predominant question in the writer's room that we kind of had the first week I'd say about the fourth week, right? Of just like, what exactly are we going to do? Like, typically when you do a scripted show, you can kind of account for all the contingencies because you write for all the characters, right? So you have, have a bunch of like known quantities. But with this one, it was really interesting and, and a lot of fun um, in that we had a variable. Like, we'd be like, okay, well, we can set it up to where, you know, Ronald uh, goes into the room. And, um, you know, some kind of outburst happens in court and we all have to, but that's as far as we can go with the setup. At that point, it's like one of those choose your own adventure books. Exactly. And yeah. that it becomes like a tree of possibility. And it's like, we well, could do this. He could do this. He could do this. And you could also do something that we hadn't thought of. So what we tried to do was just kind of pick choices that would be entertaining, but also um, kind of limit the amount of options that he would have um, in his responses. So it ended up being where we just kind of, it wasn't traditional scripts in the way that you're used to seeing when you're in the business, but more so akin to like outlines where yeah. it's like, okay, we're going to, we have a bit we'd like to do here. And if that doesn't work, then we'll transition and do this other bit. But I mean, luckily for us, like a lot of the stuff worked just because Ronald was such a good guy. Yeah, I'm interested, too, in uh, some of the scenes where, for example, I mean, Evan, your character had to really bumble some presentations in, in court. How do you keep something like that where you have a bit, you have a comedic thing you're doing? How do you keep it realistic enough that Ronald doesn't figure it out? I mean, that feels like a very tightrope kind of thing you're doing there. Yeah, well, I think for us as a legal team, we were not necessarily separate and apart from everybody else, but we spent, the majority of our time was spent in the courtroom, right? So we were either in the courtroom doing the court stuff or preparing for the jury to arrive to do the court stuff. And court, even though, I mean, it makes up what, like 20% of the, of the show that's being broadcast, we were doing court for six to eight hours a day. So we were having full court days. And so at that point, you're just doing an entire day of courtroom stuff. We know that we're doing an eight hour day to use 30 to 60 seconds of the material. You just kind of lock in on it and eventually you're just doing court. Right, guys? Yeah. 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 No, there was actually, you know, an official directive from Jake to me daily, which was everybody 
go as crazy as you want and push the limit, you know, to a limit, except you, Trisha, because because you're the one who's real, like that Ronald, because, you know, he's a really smart guy. He wasn't, and you've seen the show, he wasn't, he knew it was craziness going on. But like Evan said, because we had real, we put on a real court case in front of him, you know, he, that just kept regrounding him to be like, okay, yes, this is wacky. But at the same time, the judge is real. Evan's real. She's real. You yeah. And, and, and if I can add to what Trisha said, uh, you know, on the, the, the third day or the fourth day, when there was a lot of goofiness, uh, the Brandon fell down, he got disqualified, he injured himself, just a, a bunch of things going on. By the third or fourth day, there was a day or two where we presented like five or six witnesses. And notwithstanding how wacky it is, it's boring and it's dry. <laughs> and and it, it was those days that I think brought Ronald more into reality. Like, oh, okay, great. So. Nothing says reality like a boring day in a courtroom. So yeah, oh, that yeah. would be pretty yeah. grounding. Yeah. Along those same lines, were there any moments that you feared things had gone too far and he was going to figure it out? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of those witnesses, man, like, I mean, witnesses can be wild in real life, but I mean, some of those people were just so incredibly funny. Like, I oh, was yeah. having a hard time keeping it together for for quite a few of them. Um, you know, some of the dialogue for those witnesses was great, too, where it was stuff that was clearly, like, made-up acronyms and, like, those kind of laugh points that you think, like, who's buying this? This is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I was just terrified because, I mean, yes, you know, the whole show was shrouded in so much secrecy that unless one of my executives was standing next to me. I didn't really know what the witnesses who were all fantastic knew about what was going on, you know, and I didn't want to over overshare. So I would just look at them and be like, nothing can go wrong except you breaking character. Okay. So if you ever, you know, you will never work for Amazon again. If no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was just terrified because, you know, we, we would prep them. But then they go on the stand and I was just like the whole time, like, oh God, just please don't go. I'm sorry. I forgot what I was supposed to say. Now, of course they're professionals and they're so talented. They're not going to do that. But, you know, it was just, it was a lot of, of pressure to have that in my head. Yeah. Usually flubbing a scene just means you record the scene again. It yeah. doesn't mean that you've broken the premise of your show. Exactly. So I'm interested from any of you guys, a lot, obviously a lot of our listeners are either lawyers or law students. Do you think they will get more a laugh out of this show than your average person out there? Do you think they're going to see some of the absurdity that they may feel like they're experiencing every day in real life? Yeah, I, I've spoken to a bunch of my colleagues who still practice. And I personally think lawyers will enjoy this show more than anybody. They may say, hey, a judge doesn't pick the four person. That's kind of a faux pas, but they get over that. They love the procedural stuff. They they think, how could you put up with this? How could a judge do this? And and the back and forth between the witnesses and, and the plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel. Uh, yeah, the, the comments that I've had from my, my uh, attorney colleagues has been tremendous. They love the show. I know when I was in law school, I used to really love any case that was in like an evidence class that would talk about 
something crazy that happened happened on the stand and they were real. So some of the stuff may actually be more believable to the lawyers out there than to everyone else. Well, there was a, um, in, in the Gwyneth Paltrow skiing trial, there was a, which was hilarious in itself, uh, there was a reference to her team put together an animation and I, I have not found it on the internet, but I was <laughs> dying to see what the, what the animation looked oh, like. Oh, that's um, amazing. It's, it's great. It, yeah, oh, have you I, seen I saw that? that. I saw it and it, I mean, it looks just like Deborah and Jacquees animation. It's just like the uh, high speed uh, animation of like some guy going downhill uh, and then they do like a vector line that shows him running into like the Gwyneth character. Um, and you see how that turned out for them. Hashtag Gwyneth, right? Um, so, <laughs> answer, this is a real, does it, does art imitate life or does life imitate art here, guys? Because I know. And so that's, I was watching that the week before the show went on and I was like, see, this is ridiculous. This, <laughs> I mean, if but you haven't, send it to me. Yeah, well, that's one of the things we talked about in the room because like we were constantly coming up with things and it's just like, okay, is this too ridiculous or would this happen in court? And I kind of ended up being the ombudsman of that process of like, no, that's actually just ridiculous enough. It does happen in court. Because like one of the things that we wanted to show, like we kind of snuck in like some underlying principles of like the imbalance that like economic inequity can can yeah. create in the legal system. Right. And, you know, like everybody's like really telling me how funny they thought the the Roblox scene was that the Sean character does with his like janky animation versus Deborah's high speed, like when a Paltrow level animation. But the underlying point we were trying to make with that was like, if you have a lot of money, your case is way tighter by nature, right? Like it's going to be way tighter because you can afford to spend $65,000 on an animation versus, you know, the defendant who's trying to defend himself um, with an attorney who's getting his teenage nephew to make him something on Roblox overnight in response. So. It's one of those like spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down things. We did some really funny stuff, but like we really did want to kind of point at, you know, the inequality that that wealth can create in the legal system. It's not quite as fair as you would imagine it to be. Yeah, that's such a good point, Evan. And I, I would just say um, it's been great talking to you guys about the show. I hope everybody listening to us today checks it out because I do think it's exactly right for lawyers everywhere. They're going to love seeing this one. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you guys. That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks a lot for being with me, Haley, on that jury duty interview. It was a good one. It was. It was fantastic. And Alex, good to have you explaining our Dominion Fox settlement today. Yeah, we can finally put to bed the Fox Dominion case. Also, before just before we sign off here, I would be remiss. Haley, listen, I've held my tongue. Maybe no. I mentioned it in the production meeting yesterday. I don't know. The Cubs uh, took two or three from the Dodgers over the weekend. I didn't hear anything from you about that. <clears throat> Honestly, should have swept them. They were they were a swing away from sweeping them. They're starting a four game set in Wrigley. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any towering fears to share with me? I don't know. All I'll say is when Cody Bellinger, I thought you went might go to this the way. Cubs. <laughs> I was sad, and you were like, "Why are you sad? He's bad." 
Man, and she now look at you. She got me here, Amber. <laughs> She's got me dead to rights on that. The, okay. Yes. The whole I did time say you guys, that. you were the whole time you guys are talking about baseball. I'm doing my normal thing where it's like a peanuts character in my head and just wah, 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 wah. <laughs> uh, yeah. except just this week, guys, I went with some other managers to a Yankees game. I yeah. went to baseball. Amber happened to see Shohei Otani, who's literally like the best player in the last hundred years. And she was like, mm-hmm. baseball. Pretty I cool. <laughs> I, that was my reaction. Loved seeing him have the samurai uh, hat, the, the home run hat hey. put on his head. Yeah. I will say, had a friend tell me, like, this is what will get you through this game. They're playing the Angels. You'll love Shohei. And that was 100% correct. Now I have a baseball boyfriend. Am I a sports fan? Yeah. He's a charmer. I mean, yeah. She's been Shohei pilled. He's, I have. He's, I totally have. He's uh, statuesque. Wonderful baseball player. Uh, and he hit that home run in the first inning. It's like I'd already done it from the minute I attended that game. A lot of bang for your buck there, I would say. Or Absolutely. bang for the company's buck, I suppose. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Thank you, Law360. This will be the end of the... Uh, join us next week when this four-game Cubs-Dodgers set is wrapped up and we can... And then we'll put it to bed because Cubs and Dodgers don't play anymore after that. So then <laughs> Haley and I will spare you our partisan sniping. But until then, yeah. because I've been um, now, apparently I'm a convert. I won't even mind that conversation, guys. It'll yeah. Hey, it's time to get you a fantasy baseball league. Amber. Hell not, yeah. That's let's, now let's you're not push there. our look too far. Right. I think we might right. have reached our terminus here. But anyway, <laughs> thanks a lot, guys, for this week. I also want to thank all the other people that make this show possible, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our contributing reporters, Jeff Montgomery and Leslie A. Pappas. Our music comes from Silent Partner and Keller Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That's to help other people find our show. You can also check out Jury Duty on Freebie. That is available now, and it's a fun one. And if you want to read more about anything else we talked about today, that's when you go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.